Welcome to the New Money Review podcast, the future of money in 30 minutes. I'm Paul Amory, the editor of New Money Review. We're a periodical covering the changes in money, which are getting faster and more confusing. New types of money arrive out of nowhere, like Bitcoin. Payments get faster and cheaper. Cash goes out of fashion and mobile payments take over. Some people are on the inside track, others risk being left behind. Money attracts the cleverest criminals who always seem to stay ahead of the game. Our podcast takes a big picture look at these trends. It's not just money that's changing, but technology, finance, law, government and society with it. Each week we interview a leading expert on one or more of these topics. By listening to the podcast, you can stay up to date with what's going on in money and prepare yourself for what lies ahead. My guest on this episode of the podcast is Dr. Franklin Knoll, president of Knoll Historical Consulting and a recognised expert in the history of money and sovereign debt. He focuses on the technology of money ranging from banknotes to cryptocurrency. Well, Frank, welcome to the New Money Review podcast. Could you start by telling listeners a bit about yourself and your area of work? Uh, Sure. Uh, Thanks for having me, Paul. Um, I'm a historian by training, and I basically am a historical consultant, but I specialize in the technology of money, um, especially banknotes, but now into cryptocurrency. Um, And the technology of money is for banknotes, printing presses, inks, things like that, but also... Uh, I study why a certain instrument was created. What was the rationale behind it? How was it used? And the same thing applies when you move forward in time to cryptocurrencies. How how are they created? Why are they created? How are they going to be used? And so I consult mostly for the U.S. Treasury and other places like that, like the Fed. And I'll do background research. I'll do policy analysis. I'll go into banknote design if that's requested, and otherwise deal with collections of definitive instruments, um, like treasury securities when they were printed for almost 150 years, and for banknotes, of course. And I've spent a lot of time dealing with uh, the U.S. public debt and civil war finance. So I cover a lot of bases, and... But I'm glad to be in the crypto world and learning something new every day. Absolutely. So t- um, <laughs> tell me a bit about uh, banknotes and uh, what their future role might be. We, 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 most of us are switching you know, almost entirely to mm-hmm. digital payments, whether it's with cards or mobile phones. That clearly seems to be the future in, in most parts of the world. You know, what's, what is the future for banknotes? Banknotes have a lot of tenacity. Uh, people have been, di- been predicting the end of banknotes since the 1960s. And, you know, here we are 50, 60 years later, and they're still here, and people are using actually more of them than before. So my guess is that banknotes in some form will be around for a generation yet. So printers who are currently on the shop floor still have a job till retirement. Um, And the cash industry um, will be around for a while. Seeing this transition from cash to uh, electronic format, I and some others around the world are looking at what we call a smart bank note or a crypto note, uh, which is a hybrid. It's uh, basically a bank note that can connect to an electronic network. So you could have 
basically a banknote as a token, physical token of a CBDC. And uh, so we're looking at this as a transitional element between cash we have now and a purely electronic format. Because there's a lot of reasons why people like cash and there are benefits to it. Um, So it'll take a while to make that transition and to have the benefits of both worlds, the the crypto world and the physical world, uh, I tend to argue for a smart banknote. But that's just so, one of my so, pet So how would a smart banknote uh, actually work? What, what, what would be embedded in it to make it a smart banknote? You basically need a chip of some sort um, that would allow it to communicate with the network. I'm not sure what all has to be in that chip to make the network uh, function, but a lot of what will be required will depend on how the underlying CBDC is engineered. Um, but basically, it's a regular banknote, just like you see today, a pound or a dollar. It has all the typical security features that uh, a paper or polymer note has. Um, but you would be able to uh, use this note in an electronic network. And basically, it would be kind of a, a store of value. And th- whether that note has value or not will be plainly, plainly evident, maybe painfully so. Um, just looking at the note, you won't have to connect to a network to know whether that 10-pound note has 10 pounds on it. And so offline, you, you can work offline. You don't need electricity. You don't need an internet connection to do regular cash transactions. But if at some point you want to take your 10-pound note and actually uh, move it electronically, move that value electronically, you can hook it up to a network, either with your phone or a a POS device of some sort, and move that money around uh, and do anything you would with... uh, Okay, question for you at that point, uh, Frank. Um, Yes. One of the reasons that uh, people have been been hoarding... um, banknotes, especially high denomination banknotes in countries like Japan or Switzerland, where interest rates have been negative in recent years and where inflation has been very low or, or also negative, is that it, all, it, it clearly works as a store of value if you're worried about uh, negative interest rates on, on bank accounts. So to what extent could a smart banknote um, you know, allow a central bank to uh, impose negative interest rates? You know, could it, would, it have to, would, it be, would it depreciate in value over time? In, in line with, with uh, bank deposit accounts in such a scenario? I, I, I think it can be designed to do that, yes. Uh, most likely, it would be some sort of uh, function like uh, the Fed econ- economist Marvin Goodfriend came up with, with a carry tax um, on the note. Um, and you could do other, it depends again on the design of the CBDC, but you could certainly put in smart contracts that would drive the value negative on certain occasions. It would not just have to be for a length of time. Um, you could, through smart contracts, make that note uh, have a premium if you're spending it on certain things or at a discount if you're spending it on other things besides just putting a, a carry tax on it, uh, which would spur spending. Uh, a carry tax is according to a good friend's idea, is when when the note is issued from a bank, uh, it's basically 
date stamped and it starts to lose value over time. So the faster you spend it, the more it's worth. And when that note goes back into the banking system, it, the clock is reset. And that's basically the carry tax. And you can certainly do that with uh, an electronic uh, format. Right. So these are, these are experiments that have been talked about by economists for um, for some time. And uh, I think they've been tried out in, in, in the 1930s in certain places. Uh, there was a famous experiment in Austria where there was a a carry tax on, on, on banknotes, and it did actually work to uh, stimulate spending in the local economy. But the, the central bank in that country ended up uh, shutting it down because they didn't like the competition. But you think that we're going to see more and more of this, this type of thing going forward? I think that goes back into the whole discussion of having co-circulating cryptocurrencies along with a CBDC or even cash. You know, at what point does uh, a private currency become competition for the central bank? Um, so in the, the future I see is we'll have a lot of co-circulating currencies and it'll come down to regulation about, you know, what will a central bank, uh, accept or what will the law allow? Even in the United States, it would be very tricky to have a co-circulating currency that's denominated in dollars. Um, basically given, statutes from the 1860s, that's not legal. You can have closed loop currencies, um, uh, stable coins that are circulating in closed loops or cryptocurrencies that are denominated in something else. You know, a Bitcoin is denominated in Bitcoin or Ripple or something like that. Those could co-circulate, but having competition with the central bank spending dollars is is a big legal issue which hasn't been really discussed in the US yet. Um, the OCC and some members of Congress are kind of dancing around it uh, over the past few months. Um, but, but if we go back to that, uh, the, the the era before the 1860s uh, mm-hmm. in, the, in the US, there was a, a period of a few decades where Dollars issued by different banks did circulate with different values, and they were all called dollars. But you had to look at the banknote to see and kind of use a conversion table to work out how much one bank's note was worth compared to another. So, in a sense, we're kind of going back to that era, potentially. Yeah, there's there's a lot of that uh, that carries over into the future. And I was I was thinking last night that in the history of the U.S. The late 20th century is kind of an aberration where you only have one kind of currency. Uh, If you go back to the colonial era, say you lived in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, you would be dealing with uh, pounds sterling coming from England. You'd be dealing with local Massachusetts pounds. Uh, You'd be dealing with stuff from uh, other colonies. You'd be dealing with Native American wampum. And you'd be dealing with Spanish reals. And you'll all be juggling this. And as you move forward in time, uh, say past the American Revolution into the early 19th century, uh, you're dealing with Spanish reals. If you're on the East Coast, you're also dealing with uh, all these different individual private currencies uh, put out by private banks, which have uh, state charters. And like you said, um, 
basically there was a private currency system running because all the U.S. government did was uh, mint coins. Once you brought gold or silver into the mint, they would mint it for you and hand it back to you and you could circulate it. So as you said, uh, right. So, so we're heading into a, an era of, of great complexity and it's going to be challenging mm-hmm. for all of us to work out what uh, any individual currency or money is worth potentially. Yeah, that's what it looks like. But thankfully now we have uh, algorithms that will do that for us. And hopefully at in the future, we'll be able to have an app on our phone, which will carry all our different wallets and uh, do the conversions. And when we want to make a payment, uh, our, our AI will go through our wallets and see which is the most efficient way to make a payment. And it may be a combination of things. Maybe you'll use a proprietary currency if you're buying, um, say a mid-range product like a piece of clothing or something like that. Um, maybe you have a proprietary currency for that current brand of clothing you're buying. Maybe you get a discount if you use a certain cryptocurrency. Uh, and maybe you have you know, some uh, fiat lying around that's not doing anything, and it makes sense to add that in. So you could use multiple forms of payment. And this would be what happened before the 1860s in the U.S., you would have this collection of different banknotes from different banks and you'd hand them over to the merchant and he'd go look up in the book what each kind of note is worth and do the calculations to figure this out. And even in the early 20th century, once the U.S. government had a monopoly on currency, uh, you could still have nine different forms of currency in your wallet, um, all put out by the U.S. government, which had slightly different value and slightly different purposes. Um, So it's only in the 1960s that the Federal Reserve basically takes over everything and we only have one note. So uh, for for most of the past, people were used to juggling multiple currencies and multiple values. Um, And so we're kind of getting back to that again. Yeah, the, you know the the U.S. dollar is obviously a famous symbol. It's an icon of the of the country in a sense. Um, you know, what are the what are the you've you've studied um, banknote design. You know, what you know, what are some examples of of, of where design can help um, you know reinforce the value or the uh, acceptability of a particular type of money, uh, and maybe some examples of when it you know when it hasn't worked or you know it's gone wrong. Yeah, one of the functions of banknotes ever since um, maybe the 18th century is to not only record information and show this debt instrument, what are the terms of this debt instrument to show that it's actual or legal, is to represent the country that produces it. Some designers call banknotes like calling cards of of countries. And you can see this if you go through and look at all the different banknotes. They're trying to represent their country, but they're also trying to present uh, a certain stability. This is especially true in uh, U.S. banknotes. We've basically had the same design for uh, since the 1920s. And part of the reason it changes very little is that it creates all this stability. 
And the psychological stability translates over into economic confidence. So that's one of the things. And one of the reasons why it got stabilized or the the designs got standardized um, was to create this, this stability. Because in the 19th century, banknotes had various forms. Um, and the designers within Treasury would experiment with different things. Um, the designs would be quite complicated. They would be quite uh, Victorian or high Victorian. And sometimes they could go too far and the, the designs might become confusing and or for not only bank tellers, but for average customers. And some designers tried to go for high art, um, producing banknotes with a lot of intaglio printing, which meant a lot of ink on the note, and the the notes wouldn't dry out far enough, and they would start smudging and blurring, and then you run into problems with, you know, how easy is it to counterfeit this blurred note? Um, what what substrate should we use? You know, uh, one thing that's very big now in U.S. banknote design is the look and feel of the note. That's one reason why uh, U.S. banknotes are still printed on paper and not polymer, uh, like a lot of uh, other countries do. The Euro's on polymer, Australia's on polymer, Bank Canada's on polymer. Um, but not the U.S. because it has a certain distinctive feel for it. And a lot of design um, these days is because, or, or focusing on stability, is a lot of U.S. currency is overseas. Um, probably most of the $100 bills are overseas and outside the U.S. Uh, being circulated elsewhere. So it's very important that there that any changes design is very gradual and uh, people know that the banknotes that they're hiding somewhere are still legit. And once they get into uh, underground economies or used as a store of value, it's easy for someone to tell that they're not counterfeit. You know, I can just keep going. Right. So, the, so the, 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 the design of the, the design or the, you know, the iconography of the banknote is, is obviously, then very important. I, I can. I spent some time in the former Soviet Union in the 1990s, and I can remember um, people then, uh, and they probably still do. You, you know, used hundred dollar bills as a way of storing their savings, but they were very fussy when, mm-hmm. when I was there about the, the the year of issue of the banknote. They wanted it to be a certain serial number. I mean, they really were uh, something I'd never ever thought about before. But they were, you know, in that part of the world, they were really uh, keen on on uh, on that. So it's, it's clearly. Now, as we move into the digital uh, currency era, that's something that maybe the designers of the successful payment currencies of the future will have to bear in mind, or maybe it be the wallets themselves that have uh, some kind of trusted features. I don't know. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on how we can kind of carry that uh, over to the into the future. That I can't say a whole lot about because now you're really into cryptography. And as a historian, I don't know a whole lot about cryptography. Uh, I know about security features and banknote design and very physical things. Um, so I'm I'm going to kind of be very interested too as we move into the future. How do you prevent counterfeit digital currency? That's that's something kind of hard for me to get my mind around. You know how do you how do you fake a Bitcoin? 
Um, I, I really don't know how that will play out. Yeah, well, I guess Bitcoin does it in a kind of brute force way by by making uh, you know by having all this energy go into its network. Uh, so you know, it's you it's you can't fake it apart from taking over the whole network. But uh, it's it's a it's a very energy intensive way of doing things. Um, but yes, I, I can see that. I mean, obviously, if if, if, uh, if we have many other forms of digital currency with different uh, kind of you know, different backing, uh, it's going to be very interesting to see how we, you know, how we do that. So what happens if the cryptography turns out not to be as reliable as we thought? Uh, there are yeah. always yeah. Uh, arguments that it's going to, you know, that this is going to be overtaken someday by something, by, or computers can can eventually crack the uh, the codes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you've taken a great interest in, in cryptocurrencies in recent years. And what, what, uh, what do you think in terms of the technology of money? What, uh, you know, has this been a, has had a huge impact on how we see things? Well, for me, it's the technology of, of money, uh, to a certain extent, is very constant. Um, because when you talk about the technology of money, you're not only talking about how the physical or digital item is produced, it's how it's used. What are, um, what are the basic purposes of money uh, as, as things that assign value that are payment methods, that are stores of value? Uh, the same principles apply as you move forward through time. And I'm just seeing the same things uh, starting to be applied. And for for me as a historian, what I find particularly interesting about cryptocurrency is that it because they're, the lack of their physical nature, you really get drawn into looking at the underlying principles. Um you're not caught up in this physical instrument and what it can do and what it does. And for, for me, studying cryptocurrency, moving back to these very clear original principles and certainly the multiplicity of currencies, I can then take that perspective and look back in the past and have a totally new viewpoint on what was going on in the past. Um, starting from cryptocurrency and looking at the free banking era that we were talking about with all these individual banks says, Oh, that's a completely different way to look at it because historians up until pretty much the present have looked at the free banking area in a, in a very different way, uh, very much from an economist's point of view, you know, why were these banks profitable in issuing these notes or, how did the OCC, the Office of the Control of the Currency, take control of this? Um, and why did national banks start issuing their own notes? And at what point did it not become profitable to do so? Uh, starting from a cryptocurrency perspective, you, you pull yourself back and look at this big private currency system that's operating. And how did that operate? Um, how did people deal with this system? Uh, when you don't have a phone to figure out what the conversion rates are, uh, how much did that slow down the economy? If you if you spend your time trying to figure out what the value of your currency is, and you're doing it by hand, and looking at each note up in the light to see if it's real or not, you know what kind of economic impact does that have? And now we're in a world of cryptocurrencies where you're trying to do instantaneous transactions at fractions of a cent. Of a, at, at the cost of a payment, that's you know, that's really 
a mind-bendingly different world to look at. Um, so as a historian, I see this. For, for long periods of human history, precious metals have played a, you know, uh, they've been the foundation of money systems, whether gold or silver or both. What role, if any, do you see uh, for precious metals in the monetary system? I really don't see them playing more of a role than they do now. Um, they're kind of stores of value. For me, each, each type of currency works within its own ecosystem. Um, so that's why a cryptocurrency will have value, because within that ecosystem, it plays a role in defining value. Uh, in the late 19th century, gold played that role. And we can talk about the gold standard, or in the U.S., they had a gold slash silver standard. Um, but once you move out of that ecosystem, those old forms of currency really don't have that much of a value anymore. They are, they're used for something else. Um, so say, you know, if you have notes from the Weimar Republic, they're not worth anything now because they're outside their ecosystem. Now the Weimar Republic doesn't exist. So the currency is useless. We don't have a gold standard anymore. So what role does gold have in our ecosystem? Not a whole lot, uh, except as, you know, something you could store value in because people believe that it'll move in an inverse direction to the inflation rate. So I don't really see that much of a role of uh, precious metals, except as kind of a store of value for some people. I'm sure a lot of people will be upset about that, the gold and silver world. You know, one of the things uh, that clearly is possible with uh, with with digital currency, you know, it's it's infinitely traceable, and and governments and uh, or companies issuing these currencies can you know can collect data on people's spending pa- uh, patterns and their habits and their their networks. You know, how, how traceable should money be? Is is this something we we're all going to have to come to terms with and live with and just accept, or or, or is there still you know in your opinion, a, you know, uh, a big potential um, stumbling block there for people who, you know, might not want to use non-private uh, money. Will people kind of get always then seek to to find something a replacement that is, you know, fully private? Um, the question of anonymity in uh, currency, of course, is a, a big one in the, the central bank digital currency world, as they're kind of replacing cash. And thinking about this, I can't, I think there's, I think, first of all, you need anonymity, at least at a certain level. Um, and you can debate this beyond, um, say, uh, morality or, or a liberal society. Um, if we go back to the arguments for removing high denomination currencies from circulation, um, the hundred, the 50, the, the, the high denomination Swiss notes and the high denomination euros. Um, there's two prongs to their argument. One, if you get rid of these high denomination cash instruments and move to digital one, you lose anonymity and people can track your, your spending. So you, so it's an anti-money laundering, anti-terrorist uh, kind of thing. And of course, if you go all digital, you can break the zero lower bound and go into negative interest rates. So 
if you make that argument, and uh, one economist has argued against this, saying, uh, yes, you'll be able to track uh, a certain level of crime and probably you will decrease aggregate crime overall, but you will just uh, shove uh, illegal activities into a different direction. And you'll have more organized crime who maybe create their own closed-loop digital currencies and evade uh, law that way. Or you take up old games like um, money laundering or uh, padding invoices to get your money back out. So there's economic reasons for anonymity as well as uh, moral or philosophical ones. And I think there's maybe three ways to do an an anonymous CBDC, um, uh, pulling on uh, David Birch's ideas. One is you could go to a purely uh, hardware system, like the Mondex from the 1990s, um, where you download your value from your bank account into a chip on a card or in your phone, and you just go from device to device and never go back to a ledger, which would allow the tracking to occur. Or you could do another thing that David Birch thought of was uh, using the the pattern of the Oyster card in the London Metro, which holds the information for a limited amount of time and then deletes it out. So you could track uh, suspicious payments or you could do like a JT Koenig uh, kind of uh, suggested and go to a Zcash model and have both uh, an anonymous type of currency and a fully open type. And one could work at a discount to the other. Um, so there are ways to do it, certainly. Um, and you, I'm, I'm sure there's other ways I haven't even thought of uh, using smart contracts within the digital currency to you know, make everything anonymous unless a flag goes up through some transaction. Yeah. So it's, it's certain anonymity is certainly important for a number of reasons. And there's ways to achieve that in this world, in the crypto or digital money world. Now, I was just going to mention the, uh, China rolling out at CBDC and it's uh, uh, kind of limited anonymity. Uh, yeah. from, from what I can tell is uh, local transactions are, are blinded amongst the merchants, but the central bank still knows what's going on. Uh, I saw in one of your blogs you you compared um, uh, what China is doing now with what Spain did in the in the you know seventeenth eighteenth centuries when it when it had the dominant um, probably the dominant form of global currency in the form of the its silver backed uh, real. So you know if China gets its currency design right, they could possibly be playing a similar role in in future yeah if you're doing trade with china or maybe the pacific rim you're going to be doing it with the chinese cbdc frank thank you very much for taking the time to to chat to me and look forward to staying in touch all right thanks paul it's been fun
Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Money Review podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. You can find a write-up of this episode at our website, newmoneyreview.com, together with links to any important documents or sites mentioned during the discussion. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like it, share it, or tell a friend about it. At our website, newmoneyreview.com, you can also sign up to our newsletter, which will keep you informed of all New Money Review articles and podcasts. If you'd like to support New Money Review, you can do so via Patreon or using cryptocurrency. Details of how to do this are on the homepage of our website.